All right, if you would please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be there once more this week. It's on page 772 if you happen to have one of our guest Bibles there. We're camping out in this chapter for the season of Epiphany. And though we've already looked at you know, much of the story deeply over the past couple of weeks, um, as is always the case with the Word of God, we've only just begun to scratch the surface. Um, so I, I want to say to you, uh, you know, something like what we can imagine the third wise man would have said there at, uh, at Mary and Joseph's house. You know, the, the first two wise men got there and they knocked on the door and the doors opened. You know, they said, we, we've brought gold and frankincense for you, Jesus. Uh, but then the third wise man popped his head in and said, but wait, there's myrrh. Let, let this go down as the first dad joke in history to get an applause from a whole congregation of people. Yeah. There, there's so much myrrh for us to, to gather from this chapter, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. Matthew chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 9 and ending in verse 12. <clears throat> After this interview, that is uh, Herod uh, meeting with the wise men in private. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So as we're making our way through this chapter, we, we come again to a, a, a part of the story where we hear about the star again, the star that was sort of took center stage the first week where we began looking at these, these verses. And uh, previously, back in verse 2, uh, we're told that the the wise men had seen the star rising, so that's, the, that's, that's the, the, the event that caught their attention. The star was rising, um, but here, now in verse 9, we see the star is going ahead of them. It's, it's directing them. It's, it's um, stopping over the specific house where they, uh, there in Bethlehem where they would find the infant or toddler Jesus staying. And, and there's no naturalistic explanation for this, is there? I mean, you can try to explain away what we already know from back in verse 2. Um, but when you get to verse 9 and you see the, the behavior of the star, you realize um, there's no explanation that, that makes sense other than this is, this is some sort of supernatural event that, that God is, is doing to, to guide these people. And this reinforces a couple of truths that we already know, but it's, it's helpful for us to remember these things. Uh, the first is, of course, that God wants to guide people to his son. That's the, the heart of the Father is, is to introduce you to his beloved and one and only Son. That was sort of the, our closing statement there in week one, is that the, the whole purpose of God is to bring men and women face to face with Christ. And everything in gen, the general revelation of nature and everything in the special revelation of the word is intended to point us to him. It is to direct us to him. But secondly, the thing that is reinforced by this is that not only does God want to guide people to his son, um, God knows how to guide people to his son. We cannot feel our way on our own to him. That's uh, the, the limitation we have as, as finite and even um, fallen creatures. We cannot intuit our way to, to the, 
the person of Jesus on our own. We need the light of revelation to guide us. And the light of revelation, particularly in the scriptures, is sufficient for those who truly seek him. But it is the response that I'm interested in this morning. It is the response of those who have been guided, of those who have found the Son of God, those who have uh, met him face to face. It is their response that I want to put under the microscope for here just a few minutes. And as I have taken time looking in the passage here, I have uh, detected in verses 10 and 11 a lot going on. First, look at verse 10 once more with me if you would. It says, when they saw the star, they were filled with what? What does it say? They were filled with joy. They were filled with joy. Literally, the, the expression, if we were to translate it like extremely literally word for word, it was, they rejoiced joy, great exceeding. It's a, it's a really strong way of saying something in that original language, and I'm not sure there's a, a suitable idiom in English for us to really properly convey exactly what was going on in the, heart of these, the hearts of these wise men. Maybe we could say something like, they were ecstatic or they were jubilant, or they were over the moon. I don't know if, there's a, if any of those are even good enough. Uh, maybe if I could borrow from a, a good you know, southern lectionary, we might uh, say something like, um, they were thrilled to bits, or something like that. <laughs> they were thrilled to bits. They were, they were just, there was something in their hearts that was welling up in praise and joy, um, and that's going on there in verse 10. But then in verse 11, It says, as they entered into the house and beheld the child and his mother, it says, they bowed down and worshiped him. That is, they they fell prostrate at his feet. It's just an incredible picture to see these foreign dignitaries with with enough sort of uh, clout, enough status, that they would get a a private audience with with Herod. These are not just some random guys that showed up and and, you know, caught a few people's attention. Now, this would have been an entourage that, that got everyone's attention. And to, to picture these dignitaries with this status, to entering into just an ordinary house in Bethlehem, to, to prostrate themselves on the ground before a seemingly ordinary child just is hard for us to imagine. We can literally see here the kingdom of God present and at hand in the person of Jesus, upending the systems and the structures and the values of our world. And then, finally, it says, they opened their treasure chests and they gave him gifts, gifts that were fit for a king. Gold, of course, that then, just as it is today, that symbol of ultimate value, frankincense, a spice used in perfumes and burned at important social occasions, and myrrh that other spice used as a luxurious cosmetic fragrance. Look at their reaction. Ecstatic joy. Sincere worship. Genuine, free offering. Why was this their response? Why was this their behavior when they met the the child face to face? Well, it's because they recognized and they affirmed his worth. They recognized and affirmed his worth. You know, there's a story from the Old Testament that that gives us a little bit of context and sheds a little light on what's going on here. It comes from 1 Kings, and uh, if you are familiar with 1 Kings, uh, you might remember in chapter 9, it's that chapter that's that's devoted to all of the wonderful accomplishments that Solomon was able to to accomplish. And and so it talks about how he, he built the temple, and he constructed his royal palace, and he 
uh, developed critical infrastructure for, for the people, and he forged political alliances, and he amassed a, a vast fortune, and he made a, a name for himself all throughout the lands. And then you come to chapter 10, and we're introduced to a character that we, we know almost nothing about, not from the scriptures or from history, sort of a, a, a mysterious character from, from another land that shows up, and that is the Queen of Sheba. Maybe you remember this story where she, she hears of Solomon's fame, she hears of, of his riches, she, she hears of his wisdom, and she decides, I'm going to go, and I'm going to check these things out for myself, and I'm going to ask him the hardest questions I can come up with, and just see how wise he actually is. And of course, when she arrives, she realizes that uh, everything that she had heard um, could not have begun to properly and adequately you know, capture what was really going on there. And she says in verse 6, everything I heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true, but I had not even heard the half of it. She's just blown away. And so in verse 9 of 1 Kings chapter 10, she continues and says, praise the Lord your God, who delights in you and has placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king so you can rule with justice and righteousness. And then, in response to what she recognizes going on here, it says she gave the king a gift of 9,000 pounds of gold. I don't know if I would even want 9,000 pounds of gold. Uh, by today's measurements, I mean, 9,000 pounds of gold is like, uh, it's like a quarter of a billion dollars worth of gold today. I don't know what it was worth then, but uh, it was a lot of gold. She gave him a lot of gold. She gave him great quantities of spices and precious jewels. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. I know that Matthew had to have had this story in his mind as he was recalling the presence of the wise men here. Because the, the Old Testament from, from 1 Kings chapter 10 on would, would take this story and, and borrow its imagery to describe the future glory of the Messiah. How the nations would, would come to him and they would recognize and affirm his worth and they would come and pay him homage in some form or fashion. Psalm 72 verses 10 and 11, which is a song a psalm of Solomon, by the way, says the western kings of Tarshish and their in other distant lands will bring him tribute. The eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts. All kings will bow before him and all nations will serve him. By the way, it's because of passages like that that people often call the Magi kings, when in fact we don't know whether they were actually kings or not, but it's because of passages like this that we envision them as, as royalty, as kings, because they represent the kingdoms of the earth in some form or fashion, that, that are beginning to stream, to, to come to the Messiah, to recognize and affirm who he is, to begin to pay homage to him. Isaiah chapter 60, all nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. Merchants from around the world will come to you. They will bring you the wealth of many lands. Vast caravans of camels will converge on you, the camels of Midian and Ephah. The people of Sheba will bring gold and frankincense and will come worshiping the Lord. What do you think is most significant about this sort of idea or this, 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 um, this sort of prophetic vision of the Messiah's future? What is actually happening here as, as the, the scriptures envision a time when the nations will come and do these things? Well, these prophecies point to the restoration of, of the created order, right? They, they point to the way things were supposed to be. Our present world, which is organized without reference to God and, and is oftentimes referenced and, and lived 
and structured in direct opposition and rebellion to God, well, it was not supposed to be that way from the beginning. The nations have turned from Yahweh. But he is working to put things right. He is working to heal and to restore and to renew what is wrong and what is broken. And this work of God putting all things right has been inaugurated in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God's work of fixing what is broken has begun in his son. And what we perceive as the upending of the systems and the structures and the values of the world is where everything looks like it's flipped upside down is actually God setting things back right. We, we think Jesus is some revolutionary. In a sense, he was revolutionary in relation to how we think things are supposed to be. But in reality, we're the revolutionaries. And he's come to fix what is broken, to fix what is wrong, to turn right side up what has been turned upside down. And the actions of the wise men here in Matthew chapter 2 signify this inauguration. They offer us the first glimpse of the nations return to Yahweh through the work of his son who makes all things new. And not only do they recall the imagery of Sheba and anticipate or and, and signify the inauguration of the work of the son, they anticipate the completion of the work of the son. They, they anticipate that day, which Habakkuk says, where the earth we filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That day that Revelation 5 tells us about that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them will proclaim to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forevermore. So you see, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in verses 10 and 11 of Matthew chapter 2. But what's the point? What's the point for you? What is the point for me? How are you and I supposed to read this now with, with this you know, sort of deeper awareness of, of, the, of the Old Testament background and, and the, 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 the stuff that comes to us from you know, Revelation at the end of the scriptures in light of uh, you know, history in the past and history to come. You and I are living in the present day and we read this passage and we ask, what does it mean for me? Well, at, at the very least, it means this, that this child is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship and our adoration. There, notice that there's no rebuke of the wise men's behavior here in this passage, is there? You know, just a couple chapters later, we're going to find Jesus out in the wilderness, and, you know, he's, he's super hungry, super thirsty, uh, fasting, um, for, you know, way more time than any of us have ever even dreamt of fasting. And in, at his lowest, weakest point, who shows up? Well, the deceiver, the liar, the tempter, Satan himself. And one of his temptations is, hey, Jesus, listen, man, I'll give you everything in the world if you would just do to me what the wise men did to you. It's the same, it's the same word. If you will prostrate yourself before me, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything. And do you remember Jesus' reply from Deuteronomy chapter six? What does he say? You will worship God alone. There is only one 
to be worshipped. And any time in the scriptures that you see a, a people you know, bowing before, prostrating themselves before, worshiping anything other than God, there's always a rebuke. But there's not one here, is there? It is right that they, after the pattern of the Queen of Sheba in the Old Testament and, and in anticipation of all creation and revelation, it is right that they seek him. It is right that they rejoice in him. It is right that they worship him because, as Jesus himself will say in Matthew chapter 12, someone greater than Solomon is here. Is he worth seeking to you? Is he worth prostrating yourself before? Is he worth the presentation of your treasures? You know, one of our commitments here, every time we, we open the word of God, is, is to have a posture of, of listening. We don't come to the word to dump our stuff into it. We don't come to manipulate it, to get it to say the things that we want it to say, to reinforce our ideas. We come with a posture of openness, a posture of listening. We want to hear the word of God as it speaks to us. And so I'm, I want to be careful whenever, whenever, anytime I come to the scriptures, but I, I felt a particular um, warning, I guess, in my heart, a, a check in my spirit when dealing with this text this week. I was just telling my wife this morning how hard it has been for this message to come together. And, and some weeks it just kind of happens. It just kind of is right there. It's glorious. And I have like extra time. It's like, what do I do with extra time? I have like an hour. I can do something different that I didn't expect. And then there's other weeks where it's, it's just a grind and it's a struggle and a challenge. And this was one of those. And even even moments before coming in here, there's a, a wrestling and a, grab, a grappling and a, a, a warning in my heart. I want to be careful with how I deal with this, particular, with this particular passage because so often when, we, when people come to, to this passage and you get to this presentation of gifts, you know, th- there's all sorts of things said about them that you can't really, I feel like you can't really say for sure from the scriptures. Right? Th- th- Matthew doesn't give us much commentary here. He doesn't tell us a whole lot about these men. He doesn't tell us a whole lot about what they're doing. He he doesn't say too much about what they're giving. And so I don't want to say too much about any of it either. But there's a reason why the scriptures tell us that they they gave these particular gifts to this particular king. There's a reason why they were fit for him regardless of whether or not the wise men intended for their gifts to have some sort of deeper meaning. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But from Irenaeus in the second century through Gregory the Great in the fifth century and on down through um, the, the ages of church history, the church has always tended to discern within these gifts um, something that they point to regarding the person of Christ and also our own response to the person of Christ. So take gold, for instance, that symbol of royalty and kingship, but it is also scripturally even a symbol of divinity. Pagan idols were made of what? They were made of gold. What was the the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with? Every square inch of it. It is gold. Does that mean that the the wise men fully understood the divine origins and nature of the Christ child? Not at all. 
there's absolutely nothing in the text that would indicate that they, that they knew that about him, but you and I do. You and I on this side of history with the totality of, of God's special revelation which points truthfully and completely to his son and tells us the truth about him. You and I know that this child, though from the outside looks like just a normal, ordinary, you know, poor child, you and I know that he's the eternal son of God in the flesh. And their impulse to offer him their riches, it comes to us as a reminder of of who they're offering these things to. It points to who he is in some way. And it comes to us as a challenge, a really important challenge for people who live in a culture that is obsessed with acquiring the very thing that they're giving. A culture that that will go to no ends to to accumulate, to, to get more, to place their all of their energy, all of their resources into amassing a fortune, into building wealth. And I'm not saying it's wrong wrong to have wealth, but I'm saying if that is the the central fixation of your life, if that is the, the point in which everything in your life orients around, then maybe you and I need to see the example of the wise men here. As they come and they say to this this baby, this toddler, this young child, and they say, you are worth to me more than these things. And so we're challenged. We're challenged to consider our own attitude towards material things. We're, we're challenged to consider their place in our lives. We're challenged to, to assess our own hearts, to search our hearts and say, is there anything in my heart? Maybe it's gold, maybe it's something else. Is there anything in my heart that I value more highly than him? In what tangible ways can you and I acknowledge and affirm and pay homage to his rightful place as both God and Lord over my life? Frankincense, yes, it is a spice reserved for important social occasions, but we know from Exodus chapter 30 that it was, it was central to the worship life of Israel, of Israel. particularly in the tabernacle. There was a, a bowl a holy, sacred bowl set apart. Maybe you have one of those in your kitchen that you prefer to eat your cereal out of. I don't know. But to, the, to those people then, they took seriously the, the commands of God when he says, set these things apart for me. They belong to me. Do not do anything to them other than what I tell you to do with them. And so there was a bowl and that was there to burn incense and there was a particular recipe for how that incense was to be made and it was only for the Lord. You could not take it and use it for yourself. It belonged to him sacred, holy, his. And it was used and burned in worship as a symbol of the prayers of the people of God. You and I know, as it pertains to Jesus, what the wise men could not have yet known. And that is that Mary's child would become our great high priest. Right? That he would be the one who mediates and intercedes for us, even to this moment. Did you know that? That, that as the, the great high priest, um, Jesus, in, at this moment, in, in the center of heaven, is interceding for you. For your life. 
He mediates between you and the Father continuously. He never rests. He never takes a break. He never gets bored with it. He never grows weary and be like, you know what, I think I'm done mediating for Sean. (laughs) Although I wouldn't blame him at times if he did say that. And you probably feel that way too when you look at the 100 billion failures in your life. (sighs) He intercedes for you continuously. In his one person, he reconciles God and man. But you know what else? By his completed work. Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 2, by his completed work, you and I might become priests. You and I might be a holy nation. You and I might become God's own special possession who can show others the goodness of God. Isn't that amazing? That after the pattern of the one who enters the holy and righteous Son of God, the great high priest who's interceding for you, you and I, as holy people, get to intercede for others. You and I get to show others the goodness of the one who intercedes for us. It's this incredible vision of what the people of God are called to be. And so as we consider this this gift which maybe to the the wise men, it was nothing more than just an expensive spice fit fit for royalty. But as you and I consider what it reveals about him and what it says about our own response to who he is, we are challenged with the question, are we living priestly lives that point others to the goodness of God? Are we, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, walking in the way of sacrificial love as Christ loved. Because let me tell you, Paul says that, walking in sacrificial love, well, that is a fragrant, sweet-smelling aroma to God. Are you living your life that way in response to who he is? And lastly, I told you there was going to be myrrh. (laughs) You know, I've never preached ever Matthew chapter 2. So I'm just going to enjoy this while I can. So we may, Who knows when we'll ever get back here. Lastly, myrrh, that spice used as a luxurious cosmetic fragrance. And you know, I was, I was looking all throughout the New Testament um, trying, to, trying to find, is there anywhere else that the scriptures, at least in the New Testament, that talks about myrrh that I have not thought of or I've forgotten about, and I can only find two other places where it is mentioned in the entire New Testament. One of them is in Mark chapter 15. It's the scene of the cross where Jesus is, you know, he's breathing his last breaths. He's, he's broken. His bones weren't broken, but his, his body is, is broken. It's breaking down. He's, he's dying. He's thirsty. All the things are happening. He's got, uh, you know, the, the hypovolemic shock setting in, all those things, those sciencey medical things happening to him. And in this moment, he's offered a drink. You remember this? He's offered a drink. And, it, and Mark tells us specifically it was a, a drink of wine mixed with myrrh. Now, Matthew has the same account, but he, he doesn't call it myrrh. He says it's gall, mixed with gall. And, and gall just means sort of a, a bitter additive that was added to the wine to dull the senses. It, it was meant to ease 
you know, the suffering of death. And this was, this was offered to him. And Matthew says he took a drink of it and he spit it out, basically. Mark just says he refused it. He rejected it. Why? Well, because he, there were no shortcuts for Jesus. Jesus wanted to taste not the, the bitterness of, um, of a drink that would dull his senses. Jesus came to taste the bitterness of the wrath of God upon all sin. And he wanted nothing that would make it easier, that would help him through it. He wouldn't accept anything that numbed the suffering that he endured for our salvation. He came to bear the full brunt of God's wrath. The other time that myrrh is mentioned is in John chapter 19, where you have Joseph of Arimathea has secured a a place to bury Jesus' body. Uh, Nicodemus, who was a secret follower of Jesus, uh, arrives, and with him it says he brought 75 pounds of myrrh along with... um, aloe. What was that for? Well, it was part of the embalming process. So you see, in the Gospels at least, myrrh is, is not a, a, a lovely cosmetic fragrance that you put on to go to a party. In the, in the Gospels and in, in the New Testament, myrrh points to the bitterness and the suffering and the affliction of Christ that he would endure in paying the price of the sins of all the world. And by the way, that includes your sins and my sins. Now, the wise men could hardly have seen the cross or the grave or the empty tomb from their vantage point, but you and I, we can see it clearly, can't we? And as you and I consider who he is, as you and I consider what he did for us, it should fill our hearts with joy. And it should also fill our hearts with a deep humility. It should cause us to to bow and to prostrate ourselves before him. And one of the things I always admired about Pastor Aaron is his commitment to worshiping rightly. And worshiping rightly in his eyes, and I think he's right to say this, involves integrity. And one of the things he always railed against was songs where we talk about we're bowing and everyone's standing straight up like this. Now, I'm not as strong about that because in my mind, I'm bowing in my heart. But there's something to be said about a people who refuse to bend their neck. And maybe there should be more bowing in our worship. Maybe there should be more kneeling. I know we don't want to be Catholic, but man, they've got something there that we don't. Maybe there should be more prostration of our faces before a holy God who gave his life away for you. It should fill our hearts with joy. It should cause us to bow down. It should cause us to offer him what he deserves. One day at the final consummation of all things, the gathered people of God will together confess something And I think it's important that you and I take note of what we will be confessing for the rest of eternity. It is that you, that is the Lamb of God, are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll. You're worthy to break its seals and open it. In other words, you are worthy to control the destiny, the fate of 
of all things. The Father has placed this in your hands. He has given it to you. You are worthy to have it and to do it. Why? For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. So he is worthy because he is divine. He is worthy because he is our great high priest. And he is worthy because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And because he is worthy, Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 12, and you know the passage well, he will tell us that the only acceptable worship that you and I possibly could offer him is not a giant pile of gold, although we, we, we put money in the baskets for a reason, <laughs> but it's, it's not giving him a giant pile of gold. It's not giving him pounds upon pounds of you know, expensive, exotic spices or things. It's not bound up exclusively in the giving of material things. That has to be a part of our lives. We have to do that. It's an act of worship that keeps things in the right priority. Absolutely. But Paul says the only right spiritual worship in light of all these things, of who he is and all that he has done, is to do what? It is to offer ourselves totally to him as holy and living sacrifices. Because he's worthy. Paul says, I consider everything else rubbish that I might gain Christ. The wise men couldn't have seen it all. They didn't see it all. But I think they saw enough. While everyone else in Jerusalem, we're told, is deeply distressed to hear the news that the, the star has appeared and the Christ child has been born, while everyone else is deeply distressed, uh, the priests are apathetic at best, we're told that the wise men seek him. We're told that they rejoice. We're told that they worship. And we're told that they gave him their treasures. May we be a people who are willing to do the same. Would you stand with me for prayer? I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. If you feel led to come pray up front, you are always welcome to, but um, please just respond as the Lord leads you. But as you're standing there in, in a posture, a readiness for prayer, um, I wanted to uh, point out in, uh, in Stan Keys. remember Stan from a couple of years ago, he was our revival speaker. Um, he, he wrote a devotional called Face to Face, and his entry from yesterday, which uh, I made note of it in my notes a couple years ago, um, and I thought about it, and then when I, when I pulled it up, I was like, oh, that was, that was yesterday this happened. Oh, that was today. So it was just a nice coincidence there. But uh, the entry from yesterday, the title of it is, Will You Be Happy in Heaven? Think about that question with your eyes closed for a minute. Will you be happy in heaven? Maybe we need to rethink about what heaven actually will be. It will be a place, first and foremost, of unbroken communion with God where we will be occupied with praising and worshiping him forever. And, and Key's point is, if you don't delight in his presence now, if you don't love the light of God now, if you are unwilling to receive or offer 
reconciling love now, well, heaven will be more like hell for you. A.W. Tozer once said, any man or woman on this earth who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. So if that describes you in any way, perhaps you have yet to see Christ for who he really is. Perhaps you have, you have not received what he has offered you, what he has done for you. Perhaps you have not yet been able to recognize and affirm his worth. And I just wonder if maybe this is a time for that to change. Because it doesn't have to be that way. We'll end where we began. God wants to guide you to his son. And his revelation that you have heard proclaimed to you this morning is sufficient to lead you to him in a saving and transforming and life-giving way. And though your life might be flipped upside down right now, he's in the business of setting everything aright. Can you be led to him this morning? Whether for the first time or maybe for the hundredth time in a, a deeper, more profound way, I invite you to come to him in whatever form is appropriate for you right now. Come to him as we pray. Lord, I thank you for a church that believes the scriptures. I thank you for a church that is built upon the truth of your word, that we're not here to play games, we're not here for show, we're not here just for social reasons. We want to come and, and gather around the presence of God and the truth of his word that is life for us. And I know that you honor people anywhere whose commitments are those things. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be at work even now. That your presence would be so palpable to our hearts that we could perceive you. And like, like wise men following a star, that we would come to the sound of your voice as you speak in words that our, our souls can understand. That you would point out where in our lives we need the your light to shine, what dark corner or crevice or area of, of possession we have retained for ourselves, whatever we need to, to open up to the, your glorious presence and work, Lord, reveal that to us. Expose that, and we pray that your light would transform it. And that we would be a people who continuously seek you, who continuously delight and rejoice in your presence. That we'd be a people with deep reverence and humility, would be willing to prostrate ourselves before you. And that we would offer you the greatest gifts we have to give. The totality of our lives surrendered over to you. Lord, make us to be a people like that. And I know that this church will continue to be a priestly people that proclaim the goodness of God to the world around us. Lord, we pray all these things that you and you alone would be lifted up and honored and acknowledged and affirmed and glorified. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.